If you have your Bible, find Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Today, we're going to look at the middle, the middle section of this, of this uh, most challenging neighborhood of Paul's letter to the Romans. And I'm talking about that neighborhood is, is chapters 9 through 11. Um, last week, we looked at the, at the bulk of chapter 9, which without question is difficult in a lot of ways. Today, we're going to look, our passage is going to be chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through the end of chapter 10, verse 21. Sometimes these chapter divisions, Paul didn't put those in there. Somebody later did, and sometimes they're at odd places. I think this is one of those places. But chapter 9, verse 30, through all of chapter 10, it's another big chunk. But I think we can get at the big picture of what Paul is drawing for us here and, and how it contributes to what we said last week, um, which was the, about the main point of this section. That's going to leave us just chapter 11 that we're not going to get to till after spring break. Um, and then for the rest of the semester, it'll be the, those last from chapter 12 through the end, which are like really Paul just giving practical application to all the truth that he has taught in the first 11 chapters. But 9.30 through 10.21 is, is our passage. Some of this passage is going to be very familiar to us because it includes in it one of the great missionary texts in the New Testament. But if you, if you gave yourself to the reading of it and you started in chapter 9, verse 30, and you started thinking, trying to think carefully through all that Paul is saying, you're, you're going to find that uh, it, 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 this passage is challenging in its own right. I said that last week that there are passages in this whole neighborhood of chapter 9 to 11 that it's a difficult section as a whole, partly because there's some things that he says that um, are, they're, they're difficult, not because you don't understand what he's saying, but precisely because you do understand what he's saying. That was last week in chapter 9, just a hard message to hear. But then there are other passages in this section that are hard to understand just because it's hard to understand. And, and part, of the, part of what we're going to study today is that kind. It's just hard to get your mind around the argument that Paul's making, but I think we can, we can make some headway in that. And to, to set us up for that, before we read the passage, let me just remind you of what I said I think is the purpose of this whole section in Romans. Um, I, I told you as, that as difficult as these chapters are to study, they, they have a very practical purpose to them. Um, and I said that the... The main purpose or the thesis of chapters 9 through 11 is found, I think, in the first part of chapter 9, verse 6. So if you look back at chapter 9, verse 6, the first part of that, Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That is his thesis. That's what he's arguing, that the word of God hasn't failed. What word? What word of God hasn't failed? He's referring to all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, right? Remember that in, 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 in this section of chapters 9 through 11, Paul is anticipating an objection to all that he has said in chapters 1 through 8. Um, remember, chapters 1 through 8 is just like, aside from the first three chapters, it's just like, yay. I mean, you get past all the, you're a dirty, rotten sinner part, which is true, from chapter 4, it's, it's like, like all the promises of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ, uh, of, of, 
of salvation in his name, that he is the propitiation for our sins because of his substitutionary death in our place on the cross. And we can have justification in his name by faith alone. And then we have the promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so that by the end of chapter 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And, and the objection that Paul is anticipating on the heels of that in chapters 9 through 11 would have been coming from Jews unbelieving Jews probably, uh, no doubt, to all that he has been saying up to that point in Romans. They could listen to all that, all the stuff that he really has been saying from chapter 3, verse 24, through chapter 8, verse 32. Uh, they could listen to all of that and wonder how Paul could be so confident in all these promises that we supposedly have of salvation in Jesus Christ when, according to their vantage point every indication is that all of those old testament promises to israel seem to have failed like how many times in the old testament had they read you are my people and i am your god right and 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 and, and what about all of that and if god hasn't kept promises that he made to israel how can we be so sure that he's going to keep his promise to you in jesus christ fair point Paul, what about all that? Paul responded to that in chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. God, Paul is arguing in this section, God has broken not one promise. And Paul says in that same verse, the second part of verse 6, that the reason for that is that God never promised that every Israelite would be saved. The way he says it in chapter 9, verse 6 is, for not all who are descended from Israel, that is, by ethnicity, belong to Israel, right? And he proceeded to argue in chapter 9 that salvation was always promised to those who had the faith of Abraham, not just because they were a physical descendant of Abraham, but had the faith of Abraham, who believed like Abraham in the Savior who was promised to come. But he, in chapter 9, he argued that even that, even that faith in the promised one is, is rooted in the electing love of God. In, in, in ethnicity is not a factor. God's purpose of election is. Well, with our passage today, we're coming to the next stage of Paul's argument. He's not changing the subject. There, there's a chapter a division there, but he's not changing the subject from what he's been saying. He's still talking about how we know that the word of God to Israel has not failed, and hence we can trust in the trustworthiness of God. He keeps his promises. And you can tell that he's... He's beginning a new stage of his argument when, in chapter 9, verse 30, he begins with a question. What shall we say then? And he addresses the fact that it seems like Gentiles who weren't even seeking after God, they're entering the kingdom. Whereas Jews who were seriously seeking God, according to their understanding... We're, for some reason, missing it altogether. Again, how, to state their objection, how is that God keeping his promise to Israel? How does an avalanche of Gentile converts compared to a trickle of Jewish converts, how is that evidence of God keeping his promise to Israel? And remember, Paul, the, the answers to questions like that, Paul is saying, have everything to do with the trustworthiness of God to you in Christ. So before I lay out what I think 
is Paul's argument in our passage today. We need to read it, and, uh, and, and, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Now, as we read, you, you may notice how it, it brings with it some difficulty, not because it's easy to understand and hard message, but just hard to understand. So chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they pursued it by faith. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about Israel. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that, righteousness that comes from God, those are important words, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. But the righteousness based on faith says, and he quotes from two places in Deuteronomy, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, again quoting Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for, and he quotes Psalm 19, a very interesting passage here. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, Back to Deuteronomy 32. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, yes, clear, uh, and necessary word, an authoritative word. Lord, the clarity of your word is not always equal to every other passage, but you have 
you have through the coherence of your whole word. In other words, where one passage is somewhat difficult, you, you have provided another passage with much more clarity to shed light on the one that's hard to understand. Your word is sufficient in that way, and we thank you for it. And we, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth in this passage we just read. Would you give us minds to think very carefully and clearly to understand what you have said here? These are, these are the most important things. Would you give us minds to understand it? And then hearts to embrace it, not to become puffed up with pride of what we know about the Bible, but, but hearts to embrace uh, what you have said about yourself and your purposes so that we can thereby have wills to trust your trustworthiness uh, to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in these words and give me the help that I do need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. There are, again, some pretty even breaks in this passage we just read. Um, uh, and even with that, it's hard sometimes to make clear distinctions, but there's three stages that I see generally to what he's saying here. So here's, here's what they're going to be. The first stage is chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 4. Again, that, that chapter division is in, a, in an unfortunate place. 9.30 through 10.4. And I think Paul's point in those verses is this. Israel pursued the wrong course. Israel pursued the wrong course. In other words, the Jews, by and large, were not finding the salvation promised that God had promised because they were pursuing it in the wrong way. Israel pursued the wrong course. The second stage, then, is going to be on into chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, where it's kind of the flip side of the first point, where I think Paul's going to argue Israel missed the right course. Israel missed the right course, which might sound a little bit repetitive or redundant of the first point, but there is a difference. In other words, they were pursuing the wrong course no doubt because they had missed the right course um, that God had established for them. One caused the other. They're two different things. So Israel pursued the wrong course, and Israel missed the right course. And then for lack of a better way of summarizing it, I think the third stage begins in chapter 10, verse 14, through the end of the chapter. I'm going to call it this. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. This, of course, includes that great missionary text, but Paul is in the end of this chapter, setting up what he's going to say in, the, in chapter 11, the, ne the next chapter. Um, and he's doing that in, in, in verses 10, 14 through 21. He's doing it by showing that all Jew and Gentile alike are saved in the same way um, through explicit faith in the gospel of Christ. And that the overwhelming influx, he's going to say, the overwhelming influx of Gentiles is intended to make the Jews jealous and thereby, through that, to save a remnant of them as promised. That's going to be the dominant point of chapter 11. Okay, and, it, and to say that point a different way, it's like what Paul says to Ephesians in Ephesians, uh, to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, I forget what verse, that Jews and Gentiles alike make one new man in Christ, um, of those who have faith in Christ. So some of this passage is very straightforward, but a good bit of it in the beginning takes some careful thinking, so let's do that together. Look at the first section, chapter 9, verse 30 through 10, 4. And think first about Paul's first point, that Israel pursued the wrong course. 
Like we pointed out earlier, chapter 9, verse 30 begins with a transition question. What shall we say then? What shall we say? What, we sh- what shall we say to what? I think that he's referring to the verses right before that where he had two quotations from the prophet Hosea. Okay, he, For example, if you look back at verse 25, he quoted Hosea 2.23. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And then in verse 26, he quotes Hosea 1.10. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Clearly, he's talking about the Gentiles, right? They were not the people of God. Uh, They were not his beloved people, but yet Hosea promised and Paul brings out God promised he was going to call them, the Gentiles, beloved and my people, sons of the living God. And Paul is still anticipating an Israelite, a Jew, scratching his head and thinking, but the Gentiles weren't even seeking after God, and we were. How is that God being faithful to us? And we know that's what Paul was thinking because of the way uh, he finishes that opening question in verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? And then he follows that by saying, here's what we're saying, that the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. That's not a further clarifying question. That's a statement. He's saying, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, paraphrasing Paul here, precisely that. Gentiles found salvation through faith. God found them. They weren't looking for him. And Gentiles missed it because they pursued the wrong course. And then he asks a further clarifying question. In verse 32, why? Why? Why do you say that the Jews pursued the wrong course? He says in verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's what he said in verse 31 as well, that they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They pursued a law as if it were based on works, as if attaining righteousness were based on works. When you come into chapter 10, Paul says he's going he's to bear witness that the Jews have a very real zeal for God. Paul, Paul said something very similar about himself before he came to Christ. He said of himself in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. But Paul says of the Jews in Romans 10 too, that their zeal, just like his at one time, he says in verse, chapter 10 verse 2, they were ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. That, that ignorance we'll say more about in the, next, in the next point. But look at what that ignorance led them to in verse 3 seeking to establish their own righteousness. Seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. That word seeking in verse 3 is is synonymous with pursuing in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. But notice that phrase back in verse 32 where Paul said that they pursued it, they pursued righteousness, 
as if it were based on works. As if it were based on works. He's saying that never was the point of the law. That never was the point of the law. Why, though? I think it's a good, I think it's a good question to have clear in our minds. I mean, if I can, I can imagine the Jew thinking, if, if the point of the law was not to obey it and try to be righteous, why then did he give a law in the first place? Like, why is, why, why is works not the way? And why is salvation by works an impossibility? I think it's a good question to have clear. And so let's just pa- pause right here in Romans and just, and just try to deal with that theologically. Why is salvation by works an impossibility? Well, you could answer that none of us is perfect, and you'd be right, and, ri- and, 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 and perfect righteousness is required if you want to go that route. Okay? And Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So why is it an impossibility? Because nobody's perfect. Okay, that's one answer. That's part of the answer. But that's not the whole answer. Why is salvation by works an impossibility? The re- if you get right down to it, the real reason that works, good works, righteousness before God is an impossibility to us is not just because we're imperfect people, but because that way has been closed to us since Adam ate the fruit. It's been closed to us since Adam ate the fruit. God did establish a covenant of works in the Garden of Eden so that you could work and obey and and thereby have eternal life. But Adam broke that covenant. And so even for Moses himself, to whom the law was delivered, And then the ancient Israelite people to whom the law was delivered, who received that law, the point of that law was never to pursue righteous standing before God through that law as if it were based on works. That way was already closed. And so with every generation that sought to and, and pursued so scrupulously to keep that law believing that every supposed act of righteousness got them a step closer or earned a bit more favor with God, every time they did that, they veered further and further away from the course that God had designed. It's like, whereas they might have started this close, as they're off track, it just gets further and further away. They were pursuing a course that verse 31 says would never succeed. And it wouldn't succeed not only because they were sinners, sinners incapable of perfection and because that way was closed to them since the Garden of Eden, but he's saying it blinded them to the course that God was designing for them. You see that in verse 32 when it says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And when he says that again in verse 33, when he quotes Isaiah, they tripped over the stone of stumbling. They took offense to the rock of offense. And in in chapter 10, verse 3, that because they were busy trying to establish their own righteousness, chapter 10, verse 3 says, they did not submit to God's righteousness, which was what? Christ. How do we know it's Christ? Because it says in verse 3, that that righteousness is a righteousness that comes from God. Verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
for everyone who believes. That's a much debated verse. Some say, does that word end? Christ is the end of the law. Does that word end? Does that mean goal? It's the goal of the law? Or does it mean it's the end, like it's over? I say, yes. It means both of those things. I think Paul said, used that word to mean both of those things. First, when he says Christ is the end of the law, I think it means, first of all, he's the goal of the law. As in, the law was always pointing us forward to our need for a Savior and not as a ladder to climb to God. It's more a hammer than a ladder. Okay? But it also means end, as in, it's over, as in, when Christ fulfilled it, because he was not born in Adam like we are, that, that once he fulfilled it, the law covenant that those Jews were trying to keep, it was done, it was over. He fulfilled it, it's done. In other words, never since the Garden of Eden was the course to favor with God dependent upon our obedience. We miss the point when we get into legalistic frames of mind. But the Jews saw an enormous law book and thought perfect obedience must be the way. Paul is defending the claim that God's word has not failed. And his first reason in this passage is that God never promised salvation to those who work for it and try to earn it as if it was based on works. But as we keep reading, in other words, they were pursuing the wrong course. But as we keep reading... Paul elaborates more on Christ as the end and goal of the law to be righteous for God to show how not only did the Jews pursue the wrong course, but it caused them to miss the right course. That's his point in verses 5 to 13. I'll go ahead and say this is the most difficult part of the passage, but I think we can get at what he's trying to say. Israel missed the right course. Notice what Paul does in the first two words of verse 5. For Moses. Moses. And what he's going to do after that is Old Testament quote after Old Testament quote after Old Testament quote after Old Testament quote just over and back to back to back to back to back. Paul is going back to the law. And he's going back to the law, back to the words of Moses himself. Why? To show how the right course is not something new with the coming of Christ, but was there all along for Israel to see, even in the law. He says in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. And what he means by that is, for the person who supposes that righteousness before God could be attained through obedience to the law, what does he say to them? What, he says, Moses said about that person, he quotes Leviticus 18.5, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now let me stop right there and try my best to clarify something that maybe you haven't even thought yet needs clarifying, but I'm going to tell you it needs clarifying. Um, if you've been thinking carefully about what I've just said, you might be remembering that I just said that the way to eternal life through perfect obedience has been closed since the Garden of Eden, since Adam ate the fruit. So how is Paul now quoting Leviticus 18.5 and Moses saying, the person who does the commandments 
shall live by them. How is Paul saying if you keep these commandments, you'll live by them when that way has been closed since the Garden of Eden? Here's the answer. When Moses said the person who does the commandments shall live by them, he wasn't talking about eternal life. He was talking about life and continued blessing and existence in the promised land. In the promised land to which they were journeying. Stay with me here. As long as those Israelites obeyed the law, they would enjoy life and blessing in the promised land and experience God's blessing. If they disobeyed, they would be exiled out of the land and would experience God, God's curse. But that promised land, that promised land, Canaan, was a type. It was a, it was a picture, an Old Testament picture of heaven itself, right? Hebrews 11 tells us that. Hebrews 11 tells us that even Abraham, long before Moses, who first received the promise of that land, go to the land that I will show you, it says even he was looking forward to the city that has, has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He knew that this earthly real estate was not the final thing, but that God's promise of this thing was a was, was just a, a, a signpost. It was a foreshadow of this greater thing that he was going to bring. So God told them if they obeyed his law, they would enjoy life in the land, knowing full well that they would not do that. God knew even then that they would fall away from faithfulness to the law. That's even foretold in the law. Deuteronomy 28.64. Deuteronomy is the law. And it says in Deuteronomy 28.64, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So God, even in the law, gave them a law and said, If you obey this law, You'll, you'll experience continued life and blessing in the land, but I know you won't. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be exiled out of this land because you won't be able to keep it. So going back to Romans 10.5, why does Paul go back to Moses in Leviticus 18.5 where he said the person who does the commandments shall live by them? Why does he say that? So that we would, he said the point was, so that we would always look for a redeemer. Not so that we would trust our own efforts. That we would understand that if we're judged by our works, we would be under the curse of the law. We would be exiled from the land, as Deuteronomy 28 says, and as history proved. That is why when Paul, by the way, quotes Leviticus 18.5 in another place, in Galatians 3.12, he contrasts that with faith. And he says that Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. The law was always meant to make us aware of of the curse that we are under, not be optimistic about our chances of obedience. Which is why Romans 10, verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes more passages from the law, this time from Deuteronomy, to show even more how the law itself was, was not only pointing us forward to Christ, but to repentance and faith in Him as the way to attain that righteousness in Him. So look carefully with me in verses 6 through 8 and hang on. In verses 6 through 8, he quotes from two places in Deuteronomy. He begins in verse 6 saying, But the righteousness based on faith says, and, he, and there's this phrase, Do not say in your heart. And that phrase, do not say in your heart, comes from one place in Deuteronomy, while the rest of it comes from a different place in Deuteronomy. 
do not say in your heart comes from Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5. And if you went back and read Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5, it's God saying, when I bring you into this land, don't say in your heart, it's because I'm so good. And that because, I, that because I'm so righteous and I'm so obedient, this is why I'm going in. Don't say that in your heart. It's God's being gracious to them. Um, and, and they're going to land only by His grace. But then, he quote, then Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 to 14. But did you notice how there's all these parentheses in it? Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Parenthetically, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? Parenthetically, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. Parenthetically, that is the word of Christ that we proclaim. It's not easy. What he's doing there is he's quoting that Old Testament passage, but in the parentheses, he's giving his interpretation of every phrase. His under the, Holy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he does when he says, if you went back and read Deuteronomy 30, verses, verses 12 to 14, you would see that it was talking about the law. When it says, because it will say, do not say, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven to bring it down, and it is the law. Or to into the sea, to, it is to bring it up. That is the law. Deuteronomy 30 is about the law. And Paul says it's not about the law, but what the law was pointing forward to, Christ. And so when it says to bring it down, that's Christ. And to bring him up, it up, it's Christ up. Right? He inserts Christ and, and, and this is difficult to understand at first, but it is Paul simply saying in a unique way that Christ is what he said in verse 4. Christ is the goal of the law. He's the end of the law. And the law was always pointing forward to him. And in verse 8, Paul quotes the Deuteronomy passage where it says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that was always referring to the word of faith like Abraham who looked forward to Christ as our example. So Paul is, is showing how the right course to salvation, right course to righteousness before God, was always there from the beginning, in the law. This is the path, the right path that Israel missed because they were pursuing the wrong course as if it was based on their works. And what Paul says in verses 9 through 13 is, is that since the right course was always faith alone in the coming Christ, then that promise was always true for Gentiles as well as Jews. He says first in verse 9 that in, in keeping with, with what the law was always teaching, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see how in verse, in verse 9... He's building on what he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 5. When he said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 5, the word is in your mouth and in your heart. And so you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in the Redeemer who has come to redeem us from the curse of the law. He's saying, I'm not telling you anything different than Deuteronomy told you. And he says in verse 12 that this is the way, that because this is the way, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. As he put it in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see what Paul is doing? We've been in the weeds back up for just a second. Do you see what Paul is doing? Remember his point. 
God's word hasn't failed. That's why there have been so many Old Testament quotations. That's why it's so hard for us, because we just don't know the Old Testament like Paul knew it, right? It's so hard, but he's, he's, he's trying to show you from the Old Testament itself that salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, was always the point. And it's for that reason that he moves to the final section of this argument um, that, that what this means is that what he said all the way back in chapter 9, verse 6, is that, that not all people who are descended from uh, Israel, that is, not all ethnic Jews are Israel. God's, he said in chapter 9, God's people has been always rooted in his per, God's purpose of election of both Jew and Gentile. He's going to end chapter 10 by saying, but how do we know who they are? You know, if, 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 if God's people is not based on just because you're a Jew or just because you're a Gentile, but on God's purpose of election, well, then how are we supposed to know who God's people are? And Paul's answer at the end of chapter 10 is, we preach. We preach. So think with me about this final point. Not all Israel is Israel. He said in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he told us in the last chapter that salvation was according to God's purpose of election. And he says in, in chapter 9, verse 16, it, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What Paul shows in this final section of chapter 10, beginning in verse 14 through verse 17, is that while God is sovereign over salvation, Paul's task and our task is to share the gospel indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. Especially to those who have never heard and to give access to those with no access to the gospel. Because the promise to Abraham was that through Christ, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. The promise was always for both Jew and Gentile. And so we take the gospel of Christ indiscriminately to all. That's why this whole litany of, of questions, how are they to call on him and who they've not believed and how are they to believe if they've never heard and how are they to hear without a preacher and or sent and you know it's just because the bottom line is the way that that has been the way since genesis is is romans 10 17 faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ paul ends this passage transitioning to the next chapter um where he is going to make very clear that the israel of god is not ethnic Jews nor just Gentiles, but those from every tribe who don't, don't work for his favor but trust in the one who earned it for us. And he transitions to that chapter in this way. Let's just look at the final verses of this chapter, and then, um, and then we'll close. In verse 18, he says, basically, he says, Have they not heard? And, and you, who are they? I, I think it's, it's, it's Gentiles. And, and he says, did you notice? I said this was very interesting when you read it. Have they not heard? Have they not heard what, by the way? The gospel, right? How are they to, how are they to believe unless someone is sent? How beautiful of the feet are, are the feet of those who bring good news? That good news is the gospel, right? Talking about the gospel going out to the nations. In verse 18, he says, have they not heard? Indeed, they have for 
Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Do you know where that's a quote from? That's Psalm 19, verse 4. That's talking about general revelation. That's talking about the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above claims the handiwork. So what does that have to do with the gospel? The star, sun, moon, and stars don't spell the name Jesus, right? So why is he quoting that? He is saying the gospel is going out as far as God has revealed himself in nature. It, the, gospel, the, the extent of the gospel reaches just as far as general revelation. In verse 19, he says, well, what about the Jews? The Gentiles are, are, got the gospel coming to them. What about the Jews? And he quotes Deuteronomy 32. That, that Deuteronomy 32 foretold that the Gentiles coming in would make them jealous, make them angry. That's, that's what chapter 11 is going to pick up on. And then in verse 20, he quotes Isaiah 65.1 to show that God has sovereignly brought in the Gentiles into the fold. So that in verse 21, he quotes the next verse in Isaiah saying of Israel, God has held out his hand all day long to Israel, but has been met with only disobedience and rejection. The question will be, how then is even a remnant of Israel going to be saved, as God promised in the Old Testament? Paul, I think, is amply showing, even though it's hard to get your head around sometimes, God's word hasn't failed. It hasn't failed Israel, and it won't fail us. All right, let's pray. Lord, help us to, to think so clearly about this passage. Lord, I, um, this is a very, this is a very uh, important passage, and it, and it can feel to us, I'll just be honest, it can feel to us sometimes that it's, it's, it's far away from us. Like it, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, and it's, what does that have to do with me on a Tuesday? But help us to see that it is, it is eminently important. That it has to do with your trustworthiness. And your commitment to keep your promises. And your goodness. And your faithfulness. And uh, Lord, I, 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 I pray that you would, uh, you would help us to see not only your faithfulness and trustworthiness, but you would, you would also help us to see our place in the unfolding story of your salvation of your people. So just as, like, just as this passage led us to do at the end, Lord, that you would, you would help us and give us the boldness to share the gospel indiscriminately, not trying to figure out who your people are, but preaching and preaching and preaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and sharing and sharing and letting you uh, save your people through that. Lord, help us to do that. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.